Are you good at keeping focused, keeping your eyes on the prize? I'm not necessarily thinking about uh, the task at hand, but on the big picture. You know, once we've settled on what's really important to us in our family, in our marriage, in our career, in our self-care, and especially with our walk with God, once we've settled on the main thing, are you good at keeping that main thing the main thing? You see, we often get so bombarded by the urgent, uh, all those voices clamoring for our attention that we find what little energy we have (laughs) is being poured into the secondary, the periphery. And we sometimes pause and scratch our head and think, what are we really doing? Well, this is what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, We're going to see Moses lose focus on what the main thing was, but then readjust and learn a lot along the way. And then we're going to lay alongside this a story from Acts, where the early church does something similar, loses focus of the main thing, but readjusts and is better for it. And along the way, we're going to learn for ourselves how we can, too, keep the main thing the main thing, keep our focus on what's really important. Before we open up God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come to your word. We pray that we'll come with humble hearts and quiet hearts, hearts and minds that will listen whether there is challenge or whether there is comfort. May your spirit transform us and may Jesus be made more real in Jesus name. Amen. Now we pick up the story in Exodus as the Israelites they've escaped from Egypt, crossed the Red Sea and they're moving their way through the desert and they're almost at Mount Sinai and they're almost going to receive the law of God. It's taken about three months and along the way God is teaching this very forgetful, ungrateful, rebellious people, (laughs) how to be a people rescued to worship. And today we come to the last lesson as they make this journey to Mount Sinai. They've got a lot more lessons to learn, but this is the last one before they reach the mountain. And we pick this up in Exodus chapter 18, verse 13. The next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning Till evening. And here we see the people having disputes amongst themselves, and I suppose it makes a change from having disputes with Moses. But still, Moses is very much involved because he's the go to person. He's the person you go to to resolve these disputes. And he'll be, he'll be putting up with things like one person going to Moses saying, This person over here agreed to buy my goats at a certain price, and now he won't pay up. And that other person might counter, yeah, but this person promised that the goats were in good condition and they've got the mange. I'm not paying that price. And someone else might come up to Moses later on and say, my father's died and my brother's taken all the inheritance. Give me my share, Moses. Make my brother give me my share of the inheritance. Or even even more serious, a woman may come to Moses and say, Moses, my husband got into a fight with a neighbour and he, he picked up a stone that was lying there and he struck my husband across the head and he's dead. And I'm a widow with children. I want justice. So Moses was dealing with these cases. And even though he started early and worked late, there were still people at the end of the day waiting, not being seen and not very happy. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, he sees this, he's observant. And so he asks in, uh, in chapter 18, verse 14, 
When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. So in this conversation between son-in-law and father-in-law, the major problem is revealed. And it's a practice that is vital for the Israelite nation, and they need to get it right. But at the moment, it's not practical, and it's unsustainable. Their ad hoc manner of law and order is just not efficient. And it's certainly not just, because justice delayed is justice denied. Now, we need to remember that the Israelites had just been slaves in Egypt, and as such, they would have been, what little rights that they had, they'd be subjective to Egyptian law. But now, praise God, they're free. I mean, they're free to self-determine. But that also means they are free to, to work out forms of justice and to settle disputes. And it's not happening. They've got no legal infrastructure to resolve disputes. So what's to be done? Well, after Jethro hears Moses' explanation, he doesn't beat round the bush. Verse 17. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. Now what's about to happen here is that Moses is about to hear some instructions from God through this man Jethro. He's going to hear God's will for the justice system, for the organisation of the people. And we see this the rest of verse 19 and onwards. Jethro speaking to Moses. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them this decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But but select capable men from all the people men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring very difficult cases to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. If you do this and command, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain And all the people, all these people will be able to go home satisfied. Now Moses listens to his father-in-law. I mean, it's such wise advice, isn't it? And sets about creating a fair and practical judicial system for Israel. Something that's sustaining and is not going to burn Moses out. So what's going to happen? Well, common disputes, simpler matters, will be resolved by local judges. And they have the advantage of knowing who's who and who's connected to who. And then after that, any difficult disputes Moses himself will deal with. See the wisdom of God as he uses Jethro to set Moses and the Israelites on the right track. And just to round off Jethro's story, since we've been looking at his influence, his input over the last couple of weeks, we see at the end of chapter 18, then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own 
country. Now, before we consider the New Testament example, let's take a step back and ask three questions to help us understand what's been happening here in Exodus, what's been happening with Moses. So the three questions are, what's Moses' core role? Why did he drift away from this core role? And how did he readjust? How did he refocus? So the first question, what was Moses' core role? Well, Jethro sums it up very clearly uh, in verse 19. You must be the people's representative before God. Moses, you must be God's representative before God. See, that's Moses' core role, a mediator, the go-between for God and his people. Moses was to communicate God's word to his people, and then he was to represent those forgetful, rebellious, grumbling people towards God, a God who's compassionate and kind, but also a God who's holy. So Moses' role, as we, and this will expand as we go through Exodus, Moses' role is to be that go-between, that representative, that mediator. So that was Moses' focus. But second question is, well, how did he drift away? Well, he allowed the urgent demands, in this case for justice, to push his core role of being mediator aside. He was too busy dispensing justice and not even doing a good job at it, really. He was too busy dispensing justice to mediate between God and his people. Now, let's be clear. The whole issue of justice is vitally important. We don't want to um, minimize it. It's just that it wasn't Moses's core function. So thirdly, the third question is, how did Moses readjust? Well, he listened to God's will, which came through his father-in-law. Moses delegated. He shared the load, created and set up a practical system that released him back to his core mediating. So summary, what's happening here in the the second half of Exodus 18? Well, Moses' role was to represent the people to God. However, the urgent needs for justice had, had pushed that aside and he wasn't doing his job. But through Jethro, he received wise advice and so Moses set up a practical judicial system that kept the people happy <laughs> and also meant that he could focus on his core role. And this brings us to our example in Acts, uh, a very similar example as we'll see. It's in, found in Acts chapter 6. Now we have to shift gears mentally. We have to move from the days of Exodus to 1,500 years in the future uh, to just a few months after Jesus had, had died and been raised from the dead. And the Holy Spirit had come on Pentecost. And in that day, just those few 120 believers, within within a very short period of time, there was 3,000 believers. And of course, a little bit like in Exodus days, you've got this group of people that suddenly are formed and they don't have any organizational structures. They were rescued to worship, just like God's people in Exodus were. All Christians are rescued to worship. Ah, but their worship was under threat because they hadn't organized themselves. And it all comes to a head in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now in the early church, and in those days, biblical days, there was no social welfare. And so 
the church was doing a great example of what it's done through the centuries, and that is it's caring for those that are uh, marginalised, those that are struggling. And so they do this by feeding some of the widows in the city of Jerusalem. Wonderful thing. However, that's come to a head because those Jews that come from a Greek-speaking background felt they'll be left out from those Jewish widows who come from a Jewish-speaking background. Now, there was no Moses figure in the early church to turn to because their early church in Jerusalem had a team leadership model where they had the 12 apostles who had the role of Moses. They were the ones that were concerned about this issue. And it was threatening this rescued people and their ability to worship together. So again, uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 2, we'll see the response from the leadership. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. And and then we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. Notice again the solution. The solution is delegation. Seven of their number were delegated to wait on the tables. Now the Greek word for wait or to is is the same word for serve, and it's the word diconio, diconio, and it's where we get the word deacon from. These are deacons, seven deacons to look after practical matters and so free the apostles to do their core business. So let's. Let's ask again those three questions that we asked about Moses. Firstly, what was the apostles' core role? It was very clearly said here in Acts 6. Uh, the core role of the apostles was the minister of word. They were to study the word, preach the word, teach the word, declare God's word, all in the context of prayer. So that was the apostles' calling. Secondly, how did the apostles lose this focus? Well, they potentially, they were allowing the, the, the demands of the urgent to take their time away from the core business of God's word and prayer. Now, let me get, be clear again, social concerns are very important. The church has rightfully taken the lead since way back here in the first few months of the church's life, right through to now. The church has often and rightfully taken social concerns as a priority. However, it wasn't the apostles' priority. It wasn't their core business. And that's how they potentially were were losing their way, losing focus, drifting from what they should have been doing. So thirdly, how did the apostles regain focus? Well, they delegated. (laughs) They shared the load. They set up a practical system. Moses set up a practical judicial system. The apostles set up a practical system of deacons who would, in this case, wait on tables and sort out the practical matters of the church. And as a result, the whole church was pleased. And the seven deacons did a wonderful job of distributing food in a fair and a just way. So you see how similar the two accounts are. We have Moses with his judicial system, and we have the early church with distribution of food to the poor. Both were large communities, newly formed communities, without all of the organisational systems that they needed. And because the urgent was pushing them away from the vital, they were in danger of, of losing their focus on the core business. However, 
In both cases, because of God's initiative, Moses and the apostles delegated, restructured and regained a healthy focus. And of course, some of you will be thinking along, as I have, oh, well, there's applications, there's implications for us as well. And there is. And so this brings us to our take-homes, the implications for the text. And there's going to be two today. What's clear from these two accounts is that when God's people gather as a nation, or in our case, a local church, we must be intentional about organising our life together. For we are rescued to worship, but if we don't organise our lives to keep the main thing the main thing, we can fall and our worship can disintegrate into disputes or just sort of waste away as we focus on many other things. And so we are called to organise our life together as a local church in a way that frees us up to be a people rescued to worship. And however we do that, we need to delegate. We need to make sure that everyone's doing their fair share, pulling their weight, using their gifts in a way to encourage and build up the local church in a way that honours God and frees us to be a people rescued to worship. So how do we do this as a member of the Presbyterian Church of Aotearoa, New Zealand, as a local Presbyterian church? How do we organise ourselves along biblical lines? Well, like the church at Acts, Presbyterians, we have a leadership team, uh, not of apostles, but of elders. Uh, In the the Greek, the word for elder is presbyteros. And so we get our name, Presbyterian, because of our governance by elders. So our church council, our session, is made up of elders. That's our leadership team, elders, male and female. And in this setup, the minister is the teaching elder. Uh, and he's been called or she's been called to the ministry of word and sacrament. So this is my main focus. <laughs> my main focus, my main calling, which is a thrill, by the way, and a privilege and a great joy to me, is the word and the sacraments of baptism and communion. So matter, no matter what else I do, which is important, pastoral care, very important, administration, very important, and all the other roles I do, even though they're important, they are not my core role. <laughs> and so it's very important that both personally and the structures that we set up make sure that we keep that role the main thing for the minister. Then we have the other elders are called the ruling or the governing elders. These are the other elders. And, and so what does that mean? Well, session is responsible for the spiritual oversight and the governance of the local church. And so when we have session meetings once a month, then I moderate that meeting. Now, moderating is not the same as chairing a meeting. A chair can vote, a chair can move and second recommendations. As a moderator, I can't vote and I can't move or moder- uh, move or second moderations because I'm not a ruling elder. I'm not a governing elder. I'm a, a teaching elder. Though I do make, I do make my views well known <laughs> and uh, session the elders are very gracious to listening to me in my views but at the end of the day they are the ruling or the governing elders and so they make decisions except in one area <laughs> in one area and that's worship when it comes to how worship services are organized and what happens within a service the the preaching and all that then that's the ministers the teaching elders responsibility and no votes taken <laughs> 
So things like this, how do we do this practically? Uh, there might be someone that wants to be baptised, um, might be a teenager, for example, and so we, I'll, I'll run some baptismal classes with that person, and then I'll recommend to session that that person be baptised. And session will say, yes, that we agree, but when it comes to the actual baptism, then that becomes the minister's responsibility of how that happens. Communion's the same. Uh, session set the times for communion, but how that's administrated, how's that, how that's practically outworked is, is the minister's call. And of course the minister's talking with people all the time to make sure that that's um, happening in the right way. So that's how our leadership team, like the Apostles and Acts, that's how our leadership team of elders are organised. And one of our core roles is to delegate. <laughs> we delegate. And so just like uh, the, the Apostles delegated to the deacons, Session delegates to the board of managers. In fact, in some in some churches, some older Presbyterian churches, they still call the board of managers the deacon's court. And these people are charged not to wait on tables, so I'm sure though sometimes they do. They're charged to look after the practical matters of property and finances. That's delegated, and that frees the elders to do what they need to do. And the session also delegates children's ministry to the children's and family leader, and their team, and they delegate the youth ministry to the youth leader and the team, and the Bible study that's delegated to uh, the small group leaders and local mission and overseas mission, and, and, and all this is delegated with an encouragement by the elders for everyone to pull their weight, to be involved, so the church can grow in a healthy way and that certain people aren't burnt out and, and just that real nurturing, God-honouring, Christ-exalting community that we want to be. So this then is the first application. We've learned from the Exodus story and the Acts story, Presbyterians have learned that we need to organise ourselves in a way along biblical principles that involve delegation to free up people to do the main thing, to keep God's word and not our words at the centre, to keep God's plan for our local church front and centre and not our plans. So that's the first implication from Acts and uh, Exodus. Uh, churches must intentionally organise themselves to keep worshipping central, energised and transformative. And just before I move away from this topic, uh, one more thing. The, the, I need to make a comment, I feel anyway, that the Presbyterian Church, even though I believe is very much organised along biblical lines, other denominations also organise themselves in ways that are biblical. And so the two other main types of denominations in New Zealand are what we call Episcopalian. Episcopalian is the Greek word for bishops or bishop. And so Episcopalian churches have bishops like the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglican Church. So that's another way to organise God's people to worship. Another major denominational structure is what we call congregational churches. Congregational churches are a lot more localised independent make a lot of their own decisions in all sorts of ways they their relationship with the denomination is a lot less structured and so churches like would be the baptist church the brethren church they are what we call congregational a lot more localized and independent however just like i believe that the presbyterian way of organizing things our church is in agreement aligns with the word of god i think the Episcopalian and the congregation models too. I mean, they align with God's word. And as long as they're freeing up people to worship, then God gives us a lot of freedom on how we organize our churches with delegation and 
having Christ at the centre as key. And this brings us now to our second and final implication, just briefly. Now, I've been talking about organisational matters and structures, and, and, and I know some people here are very bored <laughs> and just think this is not interest me whatsoever. And, and I can understand that, but still, it's in the Bible and it's a clear direction for us. But also, how do we make this more personal? Well, we can do this in, in one way anyway that we want to talk about now, and that's this. Just as a church can lose focus, just as a leadership team can lose focus and not keep the main thing the main thing, of course we as individuals can also do the same thing. We can lose focus. Hebrews 2, well the book of Hebrews has a number of warnings against people drifting and falling away. There are a lot of pressures on the Hebrew church, the church that the Hebrew writer was writing to, a lot of persecution, a lot of difficulties, and people were starting to lose focus, drift away, turn away. And so we read this in Hebrews chapter 2. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, chapter 1 is all about angels. And what happened in the church the Hebrew writer was communicating with was that for some reason, angels had got this Huge priority. People were talking and, and, and expecting angels to be equal with Jesus, even greater than Jesus. And they were, they were losing their focus. They were drifting away. And so the writer of Hebrews says no. And in chapter 1, wonderfully explains how Jesus is so much more important than the angels because they were losing their focus on Jesus. Therefore, he writes, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. And that's important for us as well. It's such a personal level that we do not drift away from keeping Christ as central. I mean, no matter what distractions we do, and we can and we can be distracted with some very good things. What I trust you're learning today is that even with the good things, we need to make sure that we keep Christ central. In fact, all the, this is the book of Hebrews all the way through until towards the end in chapter 12, and I want to finish with this. And this will be not the first time you've heard me share Hebrews 12 too. It's such a go-to verse for for me. And it's because I suppose I've learnt the hard way about what happens when you do drift away from keeping Christ central. Man, all sorts of troubles happen and it's just not good. But when you keep Christ central, keep him focused, then uh, what a delight. What a close relationship you have with our Heavenly Father. So I'll finish with this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen, amen. Let's keep Jesus as our centre.